Hi everyone, Jenny here. Before the episode begins, we want to let you know about an opportunity for married couples in our archdiocese to recharge and refresh their marriage. The Breathe Marriage Conference is a two-day getaway Catholic marriage conference that will be hosted at Holy Trinity Church in Spruce Grove, Alberta on September 22nd and 23rd. At the Breathe Marriage Conference, you will be given practical tools designed to help you build unity, rediscover joy, and experience peace in your marriage. You'll hear life-giving messages and engaging stories that will inspire and spark something new in both you and your spouse. If you register before July 31st, you will save $100 in registration. So to register, go to www.catholicmarriageandfamily.com. You're searching for the meaning of life. On what certainties should we build our lives and the life of the community to which we belong? I have come to know among you nothing but Christ and Him crucified. What matters is that I believe it, or rather no, not that I believe it, but that I believe it. We have hope. Someone who's alive today could be a saint tomorrow. That makes sense. That's why Jesus came on earth. In order to set them free with the truth of the gospel. Hi everyone. Matthew here, the producer for Upfront. This past weekend, a few hundred people joined us for a live recording of Upfront with the Archbishop at the Family Life Conference held at the Laxane Inn pilgrimage site. Archbishop Smith and host Jenny Connolly had a discussion about the connection between the vocations crisis and the widespread breakdown of marriages, stories of Archbishop Smith's own parents, and ways for the church to support couples in raising children who will love Jesus and desire to answer his call. This discussion was followed by a live Q&A that included questions about the church's response to the COVID-19 pandemic, the presence of gender ideology in Catholic schools, the theology of sin, the rising interest in traditional expressions of the liturgy, and much more. I want to say a special thank you to Catholic Family Ministries for hosting this live event and for everything you guys do for sharing the gospel in our archdiocese. Now, without further ado, enjoy the show. Hello, Your Grace. It's good to be here with you. Oh, we're getting a little bit of feedback. It's all right. Hi there. Hey, how are you doing? Hi, everybody. Hey. <laughs> I like your outfit, by the way. The black on black is uh, it's a good look. It, it's kind of a habit I've fallen into. <laughs> you know what's funny is right before we went on stage, someone was teasing me about how much I wear black. But I oh. guess I should just tell them that I take my cues from you, and maybe that, that'll close the conversation. You know? Come up with another answer to that, would Well, today I thought, you know what, I think that um, we've already been here for a few days and there's been so many incredible speakers who are diving really deep into a multitude of different topics, so I thought that we could just jump right in. You know how I am, I love a good segue, but I thought we could just jump right into our top topic. Sure. Um, and you and I were talking back and forth about what we could talk about and the idea arose about the connection between marriage, which of course is so central to what this whole family life conference is about, um, the connection between marriage and the vocation of priesthood, hmm. especially with the vocations crisis that we're experiencing right now. Um, when you hear that term vocations crisis, would you say that that resonates? Do you think that's an accurate description of what's going on with the number of priests we have, seminarians? It's really a vocation challenge. Um, vocation challenge. I, I don't... I, I, I get it when we use the term crisis because we all understand, first and foremost, the need for the Eucharist, the centrality of the Eucharist, and for that we need priests, and when there isn't enough, 
uh, then yeah, you get the sense of a crisis. I prefer to call it a challenge because I think we always have to keep in mind who's in charge, right? Who's, yeah. who's in charge of the church? And the Lord is always in control. The Lord is always guiding. The Lord is always calling. The Lord is always moving. And we need, we need to just maintain our absolute confidence in that yeah. and look to see, okay, how is the Lord working? How is he calling people forward? And how do we support that? Yeah. I do think we need to be a whole lot more deliberate about vocation support and promotion. Clearly, this is something that uh, the lack of priests, I think, has to call that forth from us. But never out of a sense, never out of a sense of despair or discouragement because the Lord is the Lord and he's, he's shepherd of his church and he will, he will not leave his people without what they need. That has, to, that has to be the fundamental encouragement. I've really appreciated that because we've talked about a lot of different crises in the church on, on the show over the past year. And I've, I've heard you say that over and over again, how even in the midst of the worst crisis, whether it's personal or on, on a global level, the, the, spe- the power of the Holy Spirit is not lessened by never. any human crisis. Never, ever. never, never. Yeah. I think also we need to situate that this question of the vocations challenge within the larger context of the challenge of the lack of Catholics. Right. Yeah. Right? So yeah. vocations arise out of good, strong Catholic homes, good, strong right. Catholic communities. And we know that a good percentage, the majority of Catholics today, sad to say, are not coming to church. And Catholics, Catholic families today are increasingly smaller. And so those those are not conditions that would normally be conducive to people considering, to begin with, the possibility of a call. That's why I find this conference so, so encouraging, because what we do have here are families, yourselves, that get it. Mm-hmm. that get what it is to be an authentic Catholic family, that, that rejoice in the possibility that a son or daughter might be called forth, you know, to religious life, to the priesthood, um, and support it, and support it. So uh, th- this, this, I think your instinct is good. This is a good place to be considering that connection, that connection between family vocation generally and the more specific calls to priesthood or consecrated life. Yeah. I was, I've mentioned this before and, uh, Father Shane Craig, who was a very beloved member of the formation team at St. Joseph Seminary in Edmonton for a long time. He recently moved to France, but I had the opportunity to interview him right before he left for France. And he said something that is really stuck in my brain. And I've said it over and over again, because I think he hit it right on the mark, which was, he said, the vocations crisis is first and foremost, a crisis in marriage. And he went on to say that, um, the reason that the vocations crisis is first and foremost a marriage crisis is the fact that priesthood is inherently self-sacrificial. In fact, you could argue that it's one of the most self-sacrificial lifestyles that anyone could choose, right, to respond to that call. And so if children, if young men are not seeing that self-sacrifice between their parents, if they're not seeing their parents lay down their lives for one another, then why would they choose the priesthood? And, and I mean, it extends to women as well. Why would they choose religious life? Um, those are Father Shane Craig's words, uh, not mine. And I, I thought that was an intriguing idea that maybe we don't need to look first and foremost at, oh, why aren't people becoming priests as much as what's happening with marriage? We don't, we have, you know, 
I don't know if it's accurate to say this, but half of us are children of divorce. Even within the Catholic Church, you know, divorce is, is you know, at such high levels, and a lot of marriages are, are really struggling. So do you have any thoughts on that idea that it's first a marriage crisis before a priest vocation crisis? Yeah, and I think that goes along the lines of what I was starting to touch upon a few minutes ago. Yeah. But that, that connection with the witness of sacrifice, I think, is something that, that's worth a lot of pondering. Um, and as I think of that, I'm going back in my own mind to, to mom and dad, right, when I, mm-hmm. when I grew up. Um, yeah, what I, what I saw there, what I saw there was sacrifice. Um, the sacrifice that they made for one another to make sure that the other was well and supported, but also, and probably more importantly, the, the sacrifice they made for us, for the kids. We were, we were a family. We, did, we didn't have a lot of money. We, we didn't, but we didn't, we didn't go without the necessities precisely because of the sacrifices that I can remember now mom and dad making. And often it's only in hindsight, right, that you look back and you start to appreciate it. Or as you get to be an adult, you realize, oh my, oh my, what they did for us. So I think a dad, you know, early on, gosh, when we were just starting out as a family, he had, to, I remember him needing to hold down two jobs. And, you know, mom had made that determination. As soon, I was the fir- eldest, the first, so she made that determination as soon as I came along to, I'm going to be at home, all right? I'm going to be home, raise the kids. And it would have been great to have extra income, but that somehow was not, you know, a part of the calculus for them. So dad taking on extra work. And then, you know, again, you look back and you see, well, mom and dad, they didn't always have, they're always well-dressed, well-presented, self-respect, you know, that was always... Uh, Evident, but, you know, clothes weren't just worn once and then get something new. That just was not in the, in the realm of possibility for us. And, and so these are, those are just two simple little examples of how mom and dad were constantly, constantly uh, sacrificing themselves, giving up what they might have liked to have or wanted to have to make sure that we had mm-hmm. what we needed. So there, there, there was that environment. Now, to what degree did that inspire within me that sense of willingness to sacrifice it's probably more instinctual i'd say it's, you know not not reflexive you know growing up as a kid but certainly it's something that i can see now looking back on yeah your dad was his name was donald james right oh good memory yeah yes. donald james yeah donald and your mom Anne marie therese Anne marie therese yeah oh. Anne marie yeah, yeah. Those are those are strong names. Strong names, for sure. <laughs> they created were strong a strong too. son. <laughs> <laughs> was there a particular aspect of how your your father uh, related to your mother that you really admired? When you think about their relationship, how he loved your your mom, how he honored her, was there something that really stood out to you that you remember as a teenager or as a child? I guess, what I remember is just how they were always together. Hmm. I just, I just don't remember mom and dad apart. They were always <laughs> a unit, and what they did, they, wow. they did together. And so there was that just sense of total commitment of one to the other. That's, that's the memory that stands out for me. So it was hard to play them against each other if you wanted Impossible. something? <laughs> Impossible. There was party solidarity. It's not, it's not that we didn't try. I'll, I confess to Almighty God and to you, my brothers and sisters. <laughs> yeah, not that, not that I didn't try, but um, oh no, they knew. They knew, and I think there was a little bit of a conspiracy on their part too. You know, kind of a little team Ooh, up. The you know, conspiracy if they, if, called marriage. You know, if somebody <laughs> comes at you with this question, we already know what our answer is. We'll stick together. Yeah, they did. 
Yeah, they reunited. How many siblings did you have? I have a have. brother and two sisters. Two, boy, two boys, two girls. Two boys boy, girl, two boy, girl, boy, girl. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you've talked a lot about how your dad was really present. A few episodes ago, we were talking about that relationship. Um, your, da- your dad worked. What did he do as a profession? Dad was with um, the CBC. Oh. And he was in uh, the commercial sales area. Oh, wow. But that was that. Commercial, that was commercial sales. So he did. So selling airtime and all that stuff, you know, oh, advertisements. I see. Uh, so he would sell CBC. there, not advertisements, but sell it to people who would advertise. Oh, well, he was. It's interesting. He was in a, a very particular area. And as I look back now, as I look back, I was thinking of this today because I knew we'd be talking about this. Mm-hmm. There was his, his particular role itself might have had an, um, an impact on me in my own faith development. His role was what they called at the time commercial acceptance, right? So that was, those were the days when there were certain standards that were set as to what would be acceptable to put on air and what would not be acceptable to put on air. Okay. And Dad was in the role of looking at it, okay, is this truthful to begin with? Is it something that's not offensive? It, all these different standards... And he'd, you know, thumbs up or thumbs down. And of course, some of his sales colleagues would get a little bit upset with him if he, they worked so hard to get this account. And Dad would say, nope. But, but then I was thinking about that. The whole question of standards. Moral standards. We kind of wonder, I think today we'd be a little bit surprised to think that that ever, <laughs> ever was the case, but it was. The and, fact that there was moral standards? Yeah, oh. <laughs> you know, and, and uh, now any kind of community standards, well, they're certainly not what they were in Dad's day. And I know after he retired, he'd certainly be shaking his head quite a bit at what he was seeing on the television. Yeah. But Why do you think people again, trust But again, oh, yeah. that, 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 that created, if, if I look back, that would have created the sense that, you know, there's, there are bars of expectations, really, that we're all expected to live up to. Um, and if they're not established within a particular corporation, within society, where are they established? Mm. Well, clearly they're established by Almighty God with his commandments, Jesus, the teaching of the Beatitudes, and so on. So that, that reference, even by the, the, the role that he had, to mm. the place of standards in one life, to, to kind of guideposts and guidelines, um, probably influenced me more than I realized. Why, why did people trust your dad to make that judgment call? What made him an authority that could get a job saying, yes, this should go on air, this shouldn't go on air? I think it was just his role, and he was given a set of standards against which he would measure, yeah. all right, whatever was placed before him. Yeah. Kind of like what we're all called to do, standards that we don't create ourselves, but are created for us, offered to us in God's word, against which we are called to measure our own lives. Do we measure up? Or do we not? And how do we have to get our act together? And what, am I, what are my thought patterns? What, I'm, what are my behavior patterns that if I compare them against what I have in the gospel, I really should myself be saying thumbs up or thumbs down? Mm-hmm. So, wow, that's really interesting. And your mom, she was, a, she was at home with the kids yep. for the duration of, yep. of you guys yep. being at home? She was. And when my youngest sister was finally old enough, you know, and uh, came out of high school, then she said, oh, maybe I'll start working again. And, and uh, she worked for a little while as a secretary in one of her parishes, her Catholic okay. parishes. Yeah. Wow. 
You know, you've talked about, again, I referred to this earlier, about your dad being really present and how your parents were always together. There was one story I'd love to hear again. You talked about when you were in, uh, you were a young man, you were unhappy, in, you were working in Toronto, I think in, in commerce, yep. and you said you were feeling really unhappy, and during that time, that, that spark, that question about the priesthood came up and your dad played a role in that in terms of being present. Can you uh, just retell that little chapter of your life and how your dad was there? Yeah, sure. Well, it was really providential. And I think it was a question of, you know, dad being dad. So dad being present, supportive, encouraging, and whatever it was that I was struggling through and helping me just by listening, really, to sort it all out. So after I did my business degree, I did go to Toronto. I worked for a big company there for a while. And at first, you know, a young guy, I was, I don't know, 21 probably at the time. I thought, boy, this is, this is great. Oh, yeah. you know? Got to check my I posture was, here. Yeah, yeah. I was set up in <laughs> Roll a your shoulders back. big, big tower, <laughs> my own office, all those sorts of things. And I thought, this is kind of cool, or whatever adjective I used in those days. <laughs> and uh, we, we, we might have talked about this before, but yeah. you know what? As I lived that reality, I was thinking to myself, something's not connecting. This, this is just not right. You know? So um, starting to develop acquaintances within the work world, and you get invited out to the different events that they would put on, and so I'd go. No, no, this, this just isn't fitting. And then there was a day when I was going up to work in the elevator, and I finally had to admit to myself, I hate what I'm doing. I just hate this. And then that started to bring back thoughts of uh, priesthood, which had been, you know, coming to me off and on over, over the years. And it was around that time that Dad had to come out to Toronto on business. And so uh, he was staying in some nearby hotel with his other colleagues, but of course we'd get together and chat. And so I was sharing this with Dad, and I said, you know what? I think I got to call the archbishop. And he said, go ahead and call the archbishop, right? <laughs> if this is what you feel you need to do. Right? Yeah. Mom and dad were always of that mindset. They, they never kind of directed in terms of vocation. What they did was they, they set the groundwork, set the stage, if I can put it that way, just by situating our family within that broader family that, that we call the church and establishing the relationships and everything else. And, and the church over time had really grown for me to be home. I always felt at home in the church. And so to be out of it in that secular world, it just wasn't fitting. And probably dad had an instinctive sense of that. And so he said, okay. So he's kind of sitting nearby when I picked up the phone. Is that, does that still happen when, when someone wants to be a priest? Do they call you? Does that... Or was no, that, was no, that doesn't happen now. I just happened to have um, a, a good relationship with the Archbishop oh, okay, in Halifax. Okay. We knew one another. Okay. Didn't prevent me from feeling a little bit nervous. Now I kind of wonder, why would anybody be nervous about calling the Archbishop? I have but, no idea. But I, I was, you have no idea. I called you for the first time today, and we've known each other for a while. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Were you scared? You know what? I wasn't. We've, we've done a lot of talking. We've broken the ice, Why am I, I disappointed say. that you weren't scared? <laughs> So anyway, I was scared, right? I was scared, going to call the archbishop. I can't archbishop. relate to you. And you pray for me. I go through this every week. You always pray for me. So, so where was I? Oh, calling the archbishop. Oh, we were just talking about how much more confident I am was, than you, but I was fine. nervous. I was scared. 
Anyway, Dad was right there, and I called the Archbishop. I said, you know what? I think I'd like to have a little chat with you about possibly going to the seminary. He said, I'll send you a ticket. Come on home. And so I was able at that point to arrange it so that I was on the same flight back with Dad, hmm. back to Halifax. And, and that was really good. You know, I was able to stay, obviously, at the family home and went to see the bishop, and Mom and Dad were there as I was sorting all this through. And hmm. at that time when I said, you know what, I'm going to leave my job. I'm just going to leave it all behind and uh, go where I f- feel the Lord was leading me. So Mom and Dad, as I think about it, and this gets back to our, our topic, I guess, um, yeah, they were there at that moment, but they they prepared the pathway to that long before, mm. long before, just by the way that they themselves were most at home within the church and how they 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 worked so that the church was the home for for all of us. You know, they created the domestic church for sure, but then established those relationships with people in the parish and especially with the priests, always inviting the priests in for supper, getting to know them. Um, at one point, I remember working in the, the rectory, probably when I was in junior high, high school, answering the door, that kind of thing, and seeing firsthand how the all the all the good that those priests did. We had great priests in our parish. My, oh, my. Great, dedicated men. And they were, they were wonderful examples. So I think all of that together with mom and dad's encouragement really kept that flame alive. It's interesting you're talking about having priests over for supper, when you think about raising ch- children and exposing them to priests, developing friendships with priests so that they really know their pastors, what do you think is the relationship between allowing there to be some uh, mystery about the priesthood and even the role of the archbishop that can inspire reverence? Because I think when I think about times even before I was born, I had this idea that there was people were maybe in the best case scenarios more reverent and respectful of the clergy. They had maybe more of an instinctual sense of, this is a big deal. These are the men that are, that are shepherding us and they're giving us the sacraments, our, our very, they're the lifeblood of our existence. They are the ones giving us the Eucharist. And now we have, I think, a positive progression where priests and archbishops and bishops and, and pastors are, they're a little bit more humanized because there's that casual sense of relationship. But at the same time, when you completely dispel any sense of mystery, um, just kind of thinking about having a priest over for supper, um, then you can also lose that sense of reverence. So what do you think when you're kind of sharing the priesthood with children, how do you, how can there be a healthy sense of mystery, but also a healthy sense of personal and casual relationship? Well, you know, I think there's something about the priesthood that that people generally, not just not even those within the church, just have an instinctive sense that this is something other, something transcendent. And you know where I see that is if um, I get invited out to golf, rounds of golf, for example, sometimes as oh, yeah. part of tournaments or whatever it is, and you get teamed up with folks that really don't know a whole lot about the church. But then they're okay. talking among themselves, um, I guess we need to cut back on the language a little bit. Do we, further around here, we got this archbishop. So I think there's this, this sense of the You of, hear these conversations? What's the, that? You hear them, like, whispering oh, behind sure. you? Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, we got to cut, cut the F-bombs out. Yeah, tone it down, fellas, tone it down. The bishop's never heard this language. <laughs> <laughs> He's a naive and young gentleman. And certainly has never used it, right? No. Yeah. <laughs> so I think there's that instinctive sense, but at the same time, it's it's... I do think it's important 
respecting professional boundaries and everything else, uh, for people to see the human side of the priest. You know, the Lord calls us as we are, weak, sinful, full of mistakes as we are, but he still calls us. And to, to, to be able to um, manifest that by drawing close to people in appropriate ways helps to awaken, I, I, I would hope and pray, within the heart of those who are encountering the priest that, well, you know, maybe the Lord could be calling me too, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a both end, a little give and take back and forth. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I want to revisit the que- some specific details about this vocations challenge or vocations crisis. Before I do, I just wanted to let you give you guys a heads up. If you didn't know already, after this portion of the podcast where we're having discussion, we're going to have a live Q&A. So as we're continuing the conversation, I would just ask that you, if you do have a question, just to prayerfully consider um, what it is, how you want to articulate yourself. Um, there will, there's a few people who we've asked to ask their questions um, first. So it kind of, they sent us, they sent questions in. So they're going to line up. There's will be about three or four of them. And then after that, there'll be a queue where anyone can line up. We may not have time for all of the questions, depending on how many there are of you, but there will be an opportunity for just spontaneous questions. Um, but again, I, we, I think people know that. <laughs> I, I, That's right. They I've, do been, I've been wandering the grounds for a little while before this and people are saying, are you ready? <laughs> so on ready that for note, what? <laughs> On that note, you're going to be on the hot seat. You okay for this? Hot seat? I thought this was a podcast. It's a cold. So they're ready. They're ready. They know. But we would we would ask you to just prayerfully ask these questions in the spirit. You know, we're celebrating life. Um, Is this the moment to ask your question, or is it better presented in a different context? Um, We're so excited to hear your questions, but just bring the spirit with you when you're asking the question. So that'll be coming up shortly, but. With the vocations crisis, there's, I heard about this stat through a, a research, um, a study that's coming out, um, I think in the fall, from the Benedict XVI Institute, which is uh, based out of Newman Theological College in Edmonton. I love the work they're doing. Again, check out the Benedict XVI Institute. But there, this study that's coming out um, has a lot of details, m- m- many of the stats coming from the Vatican about what are what is actually happening with Canadian priests and Canadian seminarians? And one stat is that right now, if we were to have a replacement of the priests that we need in in the future, in the coming years, we would need a 500% increase in seminarian enrollment. So if we weren't um, bringing in priests from all o- over the world to serve our needs as a Canadian church, again, a 500% increase. So that's a lot more seminarians than we have, right? So it is... Um, although we have this, this faith in the Holy Spirit and how this will unfold in the future, it is, it is pretty critical because 500%, that's, <laughs> you know, that's, it's not a small amount. And it's not some, I think any institution, if they're at that point, it's not a quick rebound. So when we think about how that connects to marriages, what would you say is one way that we can nurture and support couples, especially that have young children right now that are going to have the future priests, um, future Canadian priests. How can we protect and, and nurture that the lit couples that are married right now so that they're better equipped to raise um, young men who will be open to the Lord's call? Um, Casual softball uh, question. Don't worry about it. No, 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 no. I, it's, I think it's a critically important one. I, I think, first of all, when we talk about supporting the role, let's let's first of all define it. Uh, parents are the first 
and the most important vocation directors of the local church. Mm-hmm. Now, in the in every diocese, and we do here, we uh, usually appoint a priest as the vocation director, somebody that anybody can, uh, discerning a possible call can talk to and walk with and all that. Father Chris Schmidt, right? Right now. At the, right now it is, yeah. yeah. Um, but the real vocation directors are mom and dad. Mm. And I do think it's important for parents to be prepared to accept that role. Now here, mm-hmm. I have a sense I'm probably preaching to the choir. But it's not always the case. You know, even among some of our practicing Catholic families, um, mom and dad might not be all that crazy about the idea of a son becoming a priest or daughter going up to consecrated life. And that can be for a whole host of reasons, not least of which is, you know what, I'd like to have grandkids. I don't want you to run off to be to the priesthood. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to, to that degree, I think we really, going back to the concept of sacrifice, um, one who enters the priesthood or consecrated life, yes, makes a sacrifice, but so too do mom and dad. They might, it might involve a sacrifice of hopes or dreams for the future. Uh, but all of that needs to get taken up into the reality that we're all part of something far, far bigger than ourselves. And that's the mystery of the unfolding of God's plan in our world. Um, part of which involves the, the pinpointing, the pointing out, the calling of, of men and women to serve him in these particular roles. And so I think that's the first point. Are mom and dad ready to be a vocation director and to allow that freedom uh, for their son or daughter to leave home in that way? Right? Yeah, how would a, a couple grapple with that sense of sadness, especially let's say they only have two kids or one son? And I can imagine that would be a very natural feeling to feel like, oh, we, like our, we're not going to have you anymore. And we're not, we dreamt of grandkids and... And you, and you know, yeah, I, I think sad. people in that situation are probably the best ones, best equipped to answer it. Answer that, yeah. You know, because the, they're the ones that are, that are experiencing it. Yeah. The other, the other point that I'd want to make, though, and this would be very, very central to the home, is the centrality of prayer. Mm. Jesus gave one strategy for vocations promotion. And he said, pray. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Now, we tend to try to get strategic, which is, which is good, try to put plans in place, right? But at the end of the day, uh, sometimes that, we have to be careful that that doesn't overshadow what the one thing that the Lord asked us to do, and that's to pray for vocations. So the question that I would put to this group or to any group is, are we in fact doing that? Now, there is evidence that it's happening. You know that we do have... Um, what do we call it, the vocation, the seminarian calendar. So the, the, the St. Joseph Seminary produces a, oh, yes. a calendar, and every day there's a name, face of a seminarian, people pray for them, and then that's an encouragement to pray for more seminarians. And so we're, seeing, we're starting to see the fruits of that here in the Archdiocese. So come the fall, we will have 16 young men from our diocese studying for the priesthood. Wow. Good, solid 16. guys. Wow, round it's of good. applause. That's good. Many there are, and many of them are here in this audience. Yeah. yeah, but why is that? People are praying. I'm convinced, right? Prayer works. So, are we praying enough? Not so sure we are. 
All right. So let's let's kind of get down on our knees from the depths of our hearts and do what Jesus asked us to do. Pray the Lord of the harvest and laborers into the harvest. And do that from the heart of the home. Do that whenever we're church. Do that whenever we're before the Blessed Sacrament. You know? um, but within that context of prayer that's fashioned in the home, in the domestic church, that, that itself is a signal to everybody within that household to ask, well, how's the Lord calling me? Most people are called to Christian marriage. Great, wonderful. Not everybody. And am I open to that? And am I as an individual ready to hear the Lord call me. When I pray for vocations, do I pray that the other guy gets the call? Isn't that great? <laughs> or am I praying that maybe I'll be open to hear it if it's coming to me? These, these are all questions. And, and are mom and dad ready to support that when it happens? Mm-hmm. Amen. And what it, and such gratitude to all of the the couples and the the parents in this oh, room. I'm full of gratitude, and especially for those that have raised children who are now yeah. uh, discerning priesthood in the yeah. seminary. This uh, this family life conference and the people that come to it are such a source of hope for me. I can tell you, you know, you 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 take very very seriously the call to authentic Christian family life. Not easy today. I'll chat about that a little bit tomorrow in the homily in relationship to what we hear in the gospel. Um, but you're there, you're in it, you support one another, you're open and receptive to the call of the Lord, to following his teachings, and this is of such vital importance mm-hmm. for the life of the church here in this local archdiocese, so I'm really grateful to all of you. Yeah, amen. Now, I before we are going to be moving to the Q and A shortly, but I wanted to. Is run this a, when I get nervous, scared? Yes, is terror. Terror. Okay. <laughs> no, no. God bless you. I, I have a theory. I want to run by you, though. I've been thinking, <laughs> and I, I want to hear whether you think there's any validity to it when it comes to. So, especially, I mean, we've been in June, which has been not by the church, but is often referred to as Pride Month from secular perspectives, um, and I think. Uh, in many ways, we, we see that that uh, that as a representation of just how much marriage is under attack. The the Catholic definition of of marriage as between a man and a woman, and so in many ways, we see marriage just really being assaulted right now. And in in light of that, I've wondered if the Lord, in His infinite wisdom, has thought, let's just pause on priestly vocations for the most part and really just focus on marriage and call way more people to marriage um, because we really, really need that solid foundation. There are no children to become priests without parents, and there are certainly no children that will be called to priesthood or will at least respond to the call if their parents didn't maybe cultivate soil that would allow for that. So I've wondered if there's been almost like a spiritual shift of just right now is really a season of leaning into marriage. What do you think of that theory? (laughs) Oh, I think um, a couple of thoughts. First of all, in terms of what the Lord might be doing, that's very, we know he's doing something. Right. Can confirm. Can confirm. (laughs) What the Lord does, though, often. You heard it here, folks. (laughs) (laughs) It's recorded, too. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the Archbishop's reasonably confident that the Lord's doing something. Good. (laughs) 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 Confirm tomorrow's headline. (laughs) 
Anyway. What I was going to <laughs> conclude by saying was, it's often only in uh, hindsight, right, that we're given the gift of seeing how the Lord has, in fact, been at work, which is a wonderful thing to behold. Right. I, you know, but I think with respect to marriage, um, right now it's an instance of what the church has always been called upon to do. Jesus made the promise at the, at the outset, you know, that if people hated me, they're going to hate you precisely because you follow me. It's one of these great mysteries, really, that has kind of woven its way through history. Um, but as the church uh, faces these variety of attacks, whether it's against marriage or all the, uh, other aspects of the teaching that we've received from the apostles, the call of the church is always the same. And that's to simply to stand firm Firm in the Lord and firm in the confidence that what Jesus has taught us is true and right. And we can never let go of that. We're being tempted all the time to let go of it. And sometimes I worry that our confidence in the teaching of the church can weaken because of the onslaught. So I just invite people again and again and again, in the midst of all of the voices that come at us, keep asking ourselves, well, who am I listening to and why, and who do I trust? And do I trust Jesus? might sound like an odd question to pose. Of course we do. But we're invited again and again uh, not to, and to trust rather in ourselves or in the spirit of the age, the zeitgeist, as we call it. Well, no, we don't place our trust there because that place is absolutely untrustworthy. The one person that we do trust is Jesus. And when, when we are invited to think other than he has taught, we come back to this again and again. Because of who he is, the eternal Son of the Father, the Word, the Logos, made flesh, the word through whom all things were created, the one in whom God's logic, divine reason, order, has come into be, and who be, in whom it, he became a person. So when Jesus opens his mouth, the logos, divine reason, God's will, God's design, speaks. And if we cannot trust that, can't trust anything. Right? So hold firm by standing firm in Jesus Christ. This is what we do. And leave the battle up to the Lord. Right? I'm struck by how many times in Scripture you, take, you go through the Old Testament. Right? Our ancestors in the faith, the Israelite people, constant, constant attack. And the call to Moses, call to other leaders is, The battle is the Lord's. You have only to stay still and trust in him. Stay faithful, trust, follow, and let the Lord do what only the the Lord can do. That's our confidence, and that's our trust. Amen. And when we're standing firm, don't forget her. The Blessed Mother, 
Love that statue, Untire of Knots. I was chatting with a couple people before our session, Father Les, you know, they, Mary looks kind of stern there in that statue. And my instinctive response was, I'd probably look rather stern too if I had to untie all these knots that kept coming. <laughs> She's focused. She can do it. She can do it. Yeah. Right? The power of the rosary. Power of the Blessed Mother. So, I probably have said this before too, when I was a seminarian looking for advice. Sister Rita Marie, a sister who was 93 in Halifax, she said, you know, just stay close to Jesus and Mary. And I've taken that uh, to heart ever since, and that's how we stand firm, folks. Stay close to Jesus and Mary, and they will give us the strength that we need to stay faithful. Amen. So we're just going to segue into a, a Q&A. So I'll just ask, there was a few people who pre-submitted questions. Um, Victor, uh, Beth, Marcus Taranjan, pardon me if I'm mispronouncing your name. If Marcus, if you're in, in the house, we'd love to have you line up. So there's a, there's a few of you. Um, and, and then we'll open the queue up to those of you who may have um, other questions that were not pre-submitted. And our, our wonderful MC, Patrick, will be holding the mic there. So, um, Your Grace, thank you for this conversation. This has been really... Well, thank you. I've learned so yeah. much, as always. And um, Isn't Jenny great? Oh. Isn't she great? But before we, before we start with our first question here, Your Grace, would you mind just leading us in a prayer for, for our, the, every couple that's here? Um, sure. the couples that are discerning marriage and for the, the seminarians that are in this room and for those 16 men who are entering uh, or going to be at St. Joseph Seminary in Edmonton this, uh, this fall. Sure. Yeah. In the name of the Father and of the, the Son and of the Holy, Holy Spirit. Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, as your children, we turn to you in and through your Son, Jesus, you who are the source of life, you who are the author of marriage, you who call men and women to follow your Son to, to life and to eternal life. We thank you, first of all, for the gift of marriage and the gift of family that flows from it. We thank you for all these that are gathered here today in this place for the weekend, those who earnestly desire to be faithful to you in their marriage and family life, and we ask that you bless them with the strength and the resolution and the joy and the peace that they need that they desire as they fulfill their calling. We ask together that you, who are the Lord of the harvest, send out more laborers into our harvest, to our world that needs to know the gospel, to, world, to the world that needs to receive messages, messengers of peace. Raise up men to be priests. Raise up women and men to consecrated life. Let them together stand forth as witnesses to the joy the beauty, the truth, and the power of the gospel. We pray for the seminarians with whom you have blessed us. We ask that you open their hearts and minds to continue in their discernment. We also lift up to you our former seminarians, those who came to the seminary but uh, discerned together with the formation team that this was not your call, that you are calling them elsewhere. We thank you, too, for their witness and ask that you strengthen them and enlighten them, that they may know, 
too how to follow you. Be with us all. Be with the church. Strengthen us. Help us to stand firm. And help us together to be bold, courageous, and joyful witnesses before the world to the truth that you have revealed in the gospel of your Son. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Our Lady Seat of Wisdom. Pray for us. St. Joseph. Pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hi, everyone. I just wanted to take a moment to let you know about an opportunity for married couples in our archdiocese to recharge and refresh their marriage. The Breathe Marriage Conference is a two-day getaway Catholic marriage conference that will be hosted at Holy Trinity Church in Spruce Grove, Alberta, on September 22nd and 23rd. At the Breathe Conference, you will be given practical tools designed to help you build unity, rediscover joy, and experience peace in your marriage. You'll hear life-giving messages and engaging stories that will inspire and spark something new in both you and your spouse. Register before July 31st, and you'll save $100. To register, go to www.catholicmarriageandfamily.com, and the link will be in the show notes. And now, back to the show. All right, so we'll have our first question, and um, there were a a bunch of you that um, just so wonderfully submitted questions that were articulated so beautifully. There were a lot of questions actually about um, some of the things that unfolded during the pandemic. So if you have a question on that theme, I'm going to, I'm consolidating a bunch of questions and we'll pose that. So if you have a a question along those lines, please just hold that because there were so many that already submitted. So I will, I, I, I will ask on your behalf in this context again, because there's so many, but we'll go for our first question um, from Victor. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, Archbishop, uh, for being here today as well. It's, You're uh, welcome. it's awesome. Glad to be. Yeah. So my question, and it has a small prelude, um, recently in Florida, Catholics with the support of the diocese and the bishop put up billboards on major highways that read, Reclaim June for the Sacred Heart of Jesus, hmm. with an image of the Sacred Heart and Christ in the background. Um, in contrast, in Alberta, we find many Catholic schools with LGBTQ celebrations and symbols in June. And so my question is, uh, what in the Archdiocese of Edmonton is being done or could be done to help reclaim the month of June for the Sacred Heart, uh, particularly so we protect the family and make sure that people who feel they are LGBTQ know that their identity is in living as sons and daughters of God? Great question. <laughs> Even did background research. What's that? <laughs> Even did background research. <laughs> well, that's good. Yeah, I, I, I guess the what I would say in terms of our schools, um, I'm having quite a few conversations with leadership about this. I would, I would, I think we need to say first of all that in in my experience, when this kind of stuff happens within a Catholic school, it's clear that it shouldn't. Right, um, and it's what I do pick up. I think it's some rogue elements within the school that are pushing this, and so I think we do need to be clear that pride symbolism around it clearly have no place in a Catholic school. What is the appropriate symbol of love? Inclusion, acceptance, all of these things. It's precisely what you said. You mentioned the Sacred Heart, but also obviously the crucifix. 
There's no greater sign or symbol. So that, that is made clear time and time again. Uh, I've shared that with trustees, I've shared that with administration. What I'm also learning though is that um, sometimes we'll have people in our schools who for the best of intentions think that they're actually helping our students, accompanying our students in good ways by these other symbols. So when we come across that, what we're coming across is fundamentally not anything malicious or lack of goodwill, but a lack of catechesis. And very often a lack of any sense of Catholic ethos, right? So, so how do we address it? How do we fix it? How do we move forward so that we're actually not inadvertently risking the existence of our schools, but instead trying to strengthen them? Um, and in the midst of all of that, helping our young people who might be struggling with these particular issues uh, to realize just that, um, that, they are, that their identity is not to be associated with any particular aspect of themselves, but fundamentally the fact that they're created in the image and likeness of God. Mm-hmm. There's one very practical way to do this within a school, and that's to teach the curriculum, <laughs> teach the faith that is supposed to be permeated through the curriculum and pay close attention to the guidelines that the, that the Alberta bishops have fashioned precisely on this issue. So that as we seek to accompany our students on this, we're doing it in concert with uh, the teaching of the church. Yeah, and it's, it's, it is amazing how rich some of the curriculum is. And, and I mean, the catechism is really clear on these issues that we, we do. It's, it's a grace to have a church that's actually very clear about this topic. Well, and it also takes us back to that earlier point that I made about trust and confidence. Not allowing our confidence in the teaching of the church to weaken by, first of all, standing firm in our trust in Jesus Christ. So, um, with the kids... Again and again and again, they're immersed in all this multiple messaging and social media. Um, listen first to Jesus. Listen first to Jesus and trust that. I was with a high school class, oh, years ago, years ago, grade 12s, and they were graduating. So Q&A with the Archbishop. And so they peppered me with all kinds of stuff, I can assure you. But then I had a chance to ask them some questions too. And, and at one point I said, some of you may have heard me say this, um, who are your influences? Who, who, who are you listening to? Well, they started to talk. That's the first time I ever heard about a Gaga person, you know. And, <laughs> Lady Gaga. And, and there's oh, these other groups and videos and all this stuff. And I said, I don't have a clue what you're talking about. But Is that what you said? <laughs> I, I, and I didn't. Yeah, right? fair enough. But yeah. if you listen to them, will they lead you away from Jesus or toward Jesus? And, and instinctively they knew and they didn't miss a beat they said away from Jesus yeah so why are you listening right the trust 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 in Jesus and all else flows from that and I'm really intrigued about what's going to happen with the witness of so many I'm seeing this especially in Catholic 
um, media culture. There's more and more people who have lived within the LGBTQ community, that lifestyle. There's one particular woman, Kim Zemper, I think. She was um, in a, a lesbian lifestyle for about 20 years, and she had a radical conversion and is now sharing her testimony. She's sold out for Christ, and she's really all over a lot of different Catholic podcasts. And I think she's, her and so many other people are sharing new ways to articulate this, because it's a tricky conversation. It's not simple to how, how to catechize people. And so there's a lot of hope when it comes to how schools can address this, because there's people who have lived it who are now going to be able to give us tools to move yep. forward. Good. Yeah. Okay, next question. Beth, thank you. So get ready, Archbishop. <laughs> uh, so um, when I was at St. Therese, I was chatting with a friend of mine, and he had this philosophy that we should all think of ourselves as the worst sinner. So bottom of the barrel type thing. And at first when I heard this, I was like, okay, that's ridiculous. No, <laughs> Hitler is a worse sinner than me. Judas was a worse sinner than me. Uh, and then when I went to Newman, this question came up again, and there was many debates, many, many debates. Uh, so yeah, I'm here asking the question of, like, is it helpful to think of yourself as the worst sinner? Is that a helpful um, idea to have in your mind, or is it just disheartening? Well, I think fundamentally we have to acknowledge ourselves as sinners, for sure. Am I the worst? Well, how would I know? Okay. Um, I, think, I think God would have a better sense of that one than I would. Uh, but the fact that I am a sinner is undeniable. And I do think we have to keep that to the fore. If... Um, if if we are not sinners, we don't need a savior. Right? So to say that I am not a sinner is to say that I do not need Jesus Christ, and we just cannot go there. So um, yes, acknowledge it, but at the same time, acknowledge that there's someone that can get me out of it. There's someone that can give me the grace to, to live that life of holiness to which I'm called by baptism. If we just focus only on the sin, that can lead us towards uh, despair, which itself is a sin against the Holy Spirit. Right? So we're all sinners. We're all in need of mercy. Uh, but mercy is readily available and readily given in the person of Jesus Christ, who makes it available for us in the sacraments. Some of the saints, like St. Saint Teresa of Avila, I know she often reading her work, she often refers to herself as like, I'm the worst, right? I'm paraphrasing. But um, so it's interesting how some of the saints, they do have a penchant for that, but maybe that's more of them expressing uh, something they're feeling as opposed to it's supposed to be an authoritative statement or something like that. Well, I mean, you know, I think we can all look back on our lives and look at the, the progression and, and look at some of the difficulties we get ourselves in now. And it's hard to avoid drawing the conclusion that we really are miserable sinners, for sure, right? Um, but when I talk about worst, that, right. that's getting into that comparison thing, which right. I really can't do. Comparison thing, okay. All right, well, next question. Thanks, Beth. Good evening, Your Grace. Uh, so there seems to be a reinvigoration for traditionally oriented worship of the liturgy, with many families opting to attend the traditional Latin Mass, ordinariate liturgies, other rites, or changing parishes to find a more traditional celebration of the Novus Ordo. How can the diocese cultivate Novus Ordo liturgies that reflect the Second Vatican Council's documents, like Sacrosanctum Concilium, for example, including 
Latin, chant as liturgical music, priests singing the mass, incense, postures for both the laity and clergy, and just a greater adherence to the general instruction of the Roman Missal? Great question. Great question. Um, I'm going to give a, a quick answer, but I don't mean it to be a glib one. Um, go to the Basilica. And that's, um, that's precisely where we're trying to do just that, with the establishment of the scola that's there, and, and, and really is trying to recover, in, particularly at the, at the 1030 Mass, but throughout, what it looks like, what it feels like, what it is to celebrate the Norvis Ordo, as intended by the germ, the general instruction of the Roman Missal. As we do that, though, I think, I think it becomes clear that across the board in the archdiocese, whether it's people that are more traditionally oriented in the liturgy or otherwise, there's, there's probably need for a whole lot of catechesis. A whole lot of catechesis. Now, if you, um, if you recall the pastoral letter that I issued back in 2017, Living in the Word of God, it kind of got to the heart of what it is to live the Catholic life hearing first the word and then responding to it in three ways, worship, witness, and service. Um, what we hope to do in the archdiocese over the next number of years, now that we're kind of regrouping against after, after um, the pandemic, is to lead the diocese through a catechesis in each of those areas. And so worship, well, listening to the word of God, understanding the role of the Bible in our lives, that's, that's first because God speaks first, we respond but then what is that initial response, the response to God who has revealed his love to us, revealed himself to us in Jesus? That first response is worship, right? A worship as God intends it, worship as revealed in Jesus, worship as captured and expressed in the magisterial documents of the church. How we can do that, how we can move forward with it, um, that's yet to be determined, uh, but we're starting to see instances of it, and I, I highlight that again that one example of the Basilica, but how do we tease that out? That's a project that, that we have, that is yet before us, but is certainly, it's certainly on my radar. A, a brief follow-up. Um, the initial question was, what is the, can the diocese do, but what is laity can we do to assist in bringing that about? Well, uh, the germs speaks about full conscious active participation of the faithful. So make sure that we are conscious, that we are active, that we do understand. How many of us have read, you know, Dei Verbum? How many of us have read Sacrosanctum Concilium? How many of us have read Lumen Gentium? Right? Uh, these are precious, precious documents. And so um, let's, let's do what we can as lay people to educate ourselves and to be as informed as we can about the beauty of the mystery of the church to begin with and, and the beauty of the liturgy within it. And it's wonderful because with the documents of the Second Vatican Council, especially Sacrosanctum Concilium, that's all on Vatican.va. So if you're someone who um, wants to read what the Vatican Council says about liturgy, the details of it, you can just go online and print these documents and read them yourself without having to spend a cent other than, you know, printer ink. So it's wonderful. All right, our next question. Uh, hello, you're... Oh, sorry. Thank you. Hello, Your Grace. Uh, my name's Marcus, and I'm an alumni. We're from St. Therese Institute of Faith and Mission. And um, yes, I know you're familiar with St. Therese. We have quite a few alumni here. Uh, just for all people who don't know, it's just a, it's a faith formation college for young adults. 
uh, just after high school. And uh, something that was mentioned at St. Therese was what a beautiful thing it would be is if every diocese had a college like St. Therese where young adults after high school were able to go to receive further formation. And I was just wanting to hear your thoughts on that. Do you think that might be something that's possible either in the Archdiocese of Edmonton or in other dioceses to have a small a Catholic college to build the faith of the young lay apostolate? Oh, it's a wonderful question, but we do. All right, so we've got Newman Theological College. Oh, yes, yes. And over the last... Yeah, o- round of applause for Newman. <laughs> <laughs> so, as we know, Newman Theological College has existed from its beginning as the place where uh, seminarians receive their academic formation. Lay people will study theology with them, but usually at a, an advanced level of the Master of Theology, Master of Divinity, and so on. And in the last little while, we were able to establish with provincial accreditation a Bachelor of Arts in Catholic Studies, which has philosophical components and others. But part of the rationale behind that is certainly to provide that space whereby somebody coming out of high school, if they want a Catholic academic environment, even for a year, to get them ready to enter into the academy of the secular world, they could come to Newman for the first year of that program. Many will stay to complete the degree, but it, it, it does exist there and has, has precisely that demographic in mind. Yeah, and they have a table in the, the big white tent with all the kiosks. Go to the Newman Theological College tent if you want to learn more about that. Um, before our next question, I'll just, there, again, like I mentioned, there were a lot of questions that were, uh, a few questions that were submitted about um, everything that unfolded with the pandemic, which was such a difficult time for mm, everyone in the yeah. world. <laughs> um, but, Your Grace, basically to condense these different sentiments, there was expressed in a lot of these questions just a, a sadness, a frustration, perhaps even an anger about how the church, and this wasn't just in Canada, but how, how the church pastored those that chose not to be vaccinated. So anyone that was unvaccinated, a feeling of of sometimes being alienated or being belittled for the fact that they made that choice, although the church was, you know, technically nonpartisan, there wasn't, uh, the church didn't recommend one way or the other, officially speaking, but there was a sense for those in that made that decision that maybe better decisions could have been made, maybe there could have been better pastoring, that the alienation, that frustration, that anger, um, how would you, yeah, how, how would you, what words would you like to share on that account? Because it, it was a really difficult time, and uh, there was a lot of people that felt, you know, that, that there wasn't justice. Oh, gosh, it was a difficult time for everybody, including yours truly. Um, I, I, and I would say, too, I would have felt that alienation in the sense of being actually physically alienated from my people, mm-hmm. right? Especially those times when we weren't able to gather for Mass. I'll never forget, never, ever forget, uh, celebrating Easter Sunday Mass in an empty cathedral, right? That, and, and pictures after pictures in this diocese or around the globe of priests who would put pictures of their parishioners in the pews where they would normally sit so they wouldn't feel so isolated and separated and distant from their parishioners and priests that were feeling alienated from one another. So that sense of separation, I think, was across the board. Could decisions have been 
better made, I'm sure, I'm sure that's the case. You know, I think what we found was this is something that came at us very unexpectedly. A lot of people didn't know what this was. And the bishop certainly, I, this was my experience, found himself caught in the absolute middle between people who said, you must shut down the church. This is killing everybody on one end. And others that say, for heaven's sake, don't pay any attention to this. It's all a hoax. It's all controversy. Open up the churches. Let us all in. And then a whole range in between. So anybody in leadership was feeling really, really squeezed. And then you add to that the multiplicity of opinions that circulated um, on social media with one theory, then countered by another theory, and who do I listen to, who do I trust, who's right? I think there was a lot of opinions that were formed on the basis of what people were reading rather than on the basis of medical knowledge. It just, it just proved to be a very, very um, confusing, heart-rending time for a lot of people. Our capacity to communicate certainly my capacity to communicate on a regular basis, um, was certainly thwarted and could in no way match the power to communicate that exists within the media. And so people would certainly, whether it's this diocese or other dioceses, have been constantly, constantly, constantly bombarded by a tsunami of messages, many of which were competing and contradictory, in the midst of which the voice of the Archbishop or the voice of the Church very, very often found a difficult place to find. So in that sense, I can understand if people felt distant or ignored or alienated and so on. Uh, I think what we all have to grapple with, though, too, and be continually attentive to, is how that whole sad experience exposed some rather deep fault lines, not only in society, but also among the people of God. And a church that is fashioned to be one and united showed itself to be anything but. And even within the family of God, there was mutual recriminations, mutual judgments. I think we have to be very, very, first of all, I think we have to be patient with one another because that was a weird time. It was for many a very, very fearful time. Uh, a time in which, yeah, probably a lot of wrong decisions were made. You look back, hindsight is always twenty twenty. Um, things that, who knows, maybe we would do differently, maybe do the same if, if God forbid it were to come upon us again. Uh, but what I would really encourage everybody to be attentive to is the sad reality of division, which must not be. And if it exists, what are we going to do about it? And if there are abiding needs to be speaking the truth in love to one another, well, let's, let's create those. Uh, what is not an acceptable way forward is to leave any kind of division or separation uh, unaddressed and as status quo. Mm -hmm. And to people who were in the position where they, they felt not just alienated, but they felt persecuted 
for that decision uh, to remain unvaccinated. There were a lot of clergy that were very public, not so much in our archdiocese, but were very public about what they thought of the vaccina- of vaccination and, and did promote it by saying, I, I got vaccinated, I think this is a good idea, this is a charitable decision to do, um, which of course was an awful feeling for a Catholic who was in a position of saying, well, I'm not getting vaccinated, so does this make me uncharitable? Um, how would, what are your thoughts on that and, and that, that feeling well, think, of like I've been Yeah, I think there's, a, there's a, big, a big distinction to be made between encouragement on the one hand and mandating on the other. Yes. And certainly as the Archbishop, I was very careful not to fall into that trap of mandating because that would be out of my wheelhouse, right? I'm not so sure when it comes to a medical intervention, it should be mandated to begin with. That's a big question mark for me. Um, what, I, what I did and the Alberta bishops together did choose to do in this situation was to educate conscience, right? I don't know how well that was disseminated, uh, our teaching on this, but um, to understand the moral permissibility of the vaccine in this particular context would be consistent with our moral tradition, to situate that within our responsibility for the common good as we're making our determinations. Um, The need to make sure that our conscience is not just subjective opinion, but is certainly well formed by the best data we can find, including the teaching of the magisterium in this, and and then leave it to the conscience of the individual whether to be vaccinated or not. Yeah. That, was, that was certainly the approach that I took. Yeah. And just my final thought on this note, based on the questions that we received, would be um, if there is residue in different parishes and, and families who are feeling really frustrated or would maybe they have thoughts on how this could be responded to in the future, you know, what if there was another pandemic, that kind of situation, is there an avenue for them to connect with the archdiocese, with your office, their pastor? How how can that those concerns and maybe the insights that people in the pews have that could be so valuable, how can that be offered to the archdiocese and to yourself? I would always say, whether it's this issue or any, uh, do that through the pastor. The pastor is the way that the bishop is present in the parish, representing me in that sense. And so uh, bring it to him, and then he would know the way to bring it to myself. All right. All right, well, we'll have our next question then. Your Grace, when are the faithful going to be allowed to receive the precious blood of Christ again. Ah, okay. I get that that every now and then. Uh, Yeah, I I do hear that. Um, The answer is no time soon. Right? This is something uh, many still want it. Many are still very, very much afraid. All right? Um, we no longer have a pandemic. What we do have, I think, is an endemic. And so I, together with the other Alberta bishops, are taking our time on this. Um, and we'll see how that unfolds. Uh, my thinking right now, just to be open and honest, is that if we, when we do return, it's likely to begin gradually, sporadically, perhaps focusing upon those... Um, those liturgical celebrations that focus our attention in a particular way upon the Eucharistic mystery, whether that's Corpus Christi, whether that's Mass of the Last Supper, Easter Vigil. Um, 
but it's it's not something I'm ready to return to just yet. And to clarify, it hasn't always been, this is not to diminish the seriousness of, of how people feel about this issue, but is it true that it's the tradition of having both the uh, the bread and the body and the blood of Christ in those species that hasn't always been a consistent tradition there's been an ebb oh, and flow no. right it's and it's not just pandemics that stop that it's just not always been the tradition yeah and, and what that touches on and I think everybody here would know it is the theology of concomitance and that is the the the, uh, the full presence of Jesus body blood soul and divinity is present in each species right yeah. so it's not as if if I do not receive the precious blood, I only have half communion or something. No, no, no. Right. The Lord is fully present in each. All right. Well, you Grace. So I'm a teacher, and I've noticed in recent years there's been a large push of the transgender ideology into schools. Um, as it picks up speed, I can't help but feel scared if this ideology makes it into the curriculum, which would target kids and which would be targeting some kids which are at their most vulnerable. As a teacher, I'd be required to teach this. Between, between drag queens being invited into the classroom and schools not informing parents of their child's decisions related to sexual orientation and identity, it feels like a rapid spiral downward. What are you doing to protect our kids from this predatory ideology between the archdiocese and the province? I, a couple of thoughts. First of all, if, if we ever get to the point where a teacher in a Catholic school is required to teach gender ideology, that's the same moment in which we've lost our Catholic schools, right? So gender, gender ideology, we don't need to get into all the details of it, but it's clear that it's anti-Christian and therefore has no place in the curriculum, has no place in our schools. Um, I do think it's not just a question of what's the archbishop going to do about it. Um, what are we all going to do about it? Right? Um, so let's, let's be vigilant. Let's look for opportunities. If we do see it unfolding within a school, look for opportunities to speak up against it, whether that's to the local school principal whether that's at the parent council meeting, whether it's the chief superintendent, or whether it's to me. Um, let's look for opportunities to sh uh, support teachers like yourself who in the Catholic school system realize that this, this can be a threat. How do we support you in that? Um, this, this is a very, very strange and a very, very dangerous phenomenon that is finding its way around the globe Pope Francis has been particularly strong against it. Pope Benedict before him was especially articulate in how it is wrong and how it is dangerous. Um, I can think of a couple instances where I can be, I'm looking forward to gathering some people together to explore this a little bit more deeply so that we're understanding it from a, a Catholic and a Christian perspective. Um, but I guess, the, the, I guess my general response right now would be, let's all be attentive to this, let's all understand it, and then let's all be ready to say, you know what, this is, this is not um, consistent with our Christian identity, and it does not have any place in a Catholic institution.
All right, so our, our next question, and just to note that the queue is closed <laughs> for questions, that is. All right. Thank you for taking my question, Your Grace. This is an education question. In my understanding, education's purpose is for the transformation of the human person to be more in the image of Christ through wisdom and virtue, to be good citizens of this world and the next. And do you believe, do you firmly believe, that our publicly funded progressive Catholic system is doing that? I'm an advocate of classical education, and I do not see that progressive education can actually bring about the true ends of what education is for. What is your opinion on that? Yeah, it's, um, it's varied. What I mean is, I, well, it's been a while since the pandemic, but I've done a, spent a lot of time visiting our Catholic schools. And in some schools, I can see that, yeah, they get it. They get what this is about. Um, from the principal down through the staff, they get it. And there's a good Catholic atmosphere that, that's established there, which gives me a lot of encouragement, a lot of hope. I've been in other schools where I've, been, I've left with a little bit of a question mark. And there's a lot, lot of work that needs to be done here. So that's why I'm, I'm very careful not to give a blanket response when that kind of question gets posed to me, and it's, it's uh, not infrequently posed to me, for sure. Um, there are lights and there are shadows. Where there are lights, I want to encourage them. Where there are shadows, I want to work to dispel them. I just have a follow-up question to that, because I often wonder if dispelling the shadows is best done by shutting down some of those schools. Is that ever an option in your mind? That's a little bit, at this stage, too radical. It is too radical. We've got, we've got a, a whole history here of Catholic education. And see, part of what's, what's behind my answer to that is my own experience. All right? I grew up in a province that did not have Catholic education. And when I first went to a diocese in Ontario, when, and then when I came here, I've been in situations where teachers, where superintendents, where trustees uh, begin by praying, first of all, in their meetings, um, speak openly about how do we hand on the faith to our children, what's that look like in the classroom, striving really, really hard to make sure that the curriculum is infused with the faith as it is developed, especially when provincial expectations may not necessarily accord with you know, our own teaching. So I look at all of that, compare it to my own background, and say, okay, let's be really, really careful, people, not to give up on this too quickly. There have been too many lives fully dedicated to it, too many sacrifices that have been made, and too much good that remains just to be ready to throw it all away. So where I am at this point is we've got an extraordinary gift. We've got an extraordinary opportunity. There are moments when I'm probably just as frustrated as anybody else with what I'll see. But at the end of the day, I said, I'm not ready to give up on this yet. Let's keep at it for the sake of preserving and strengthening um, a fundamental good 
And just a, a shout out to the Archdiocesan YouTube channel, which is also often produced by our producer, Matthew Bodnarek. There's a video on there um, with Justice Fian, who is a scholar on the topic of the, of the constitutional right to Catholic education in the province of Alberta. So if you're interested about the history and the fact that there is an actual constitutional right to Catholic education, then go to the YouTube channel and you can watch that video. All right, our next question. <laughs> okay, this is a prayer that I got at a retreat, um, maybe like 30 years ago. And it's um, for people that have a hard time, you know, like forgiving. Huh. They got big hurts, you know. So they gave us this prayer to say, and you know. So I thought maybe you could say people here. I don't know. <laughs> Unless you want me to do it there, but, uh, well, it, it's really easy prayer. It goes like this. Well, people, maybe they can say it with me at the same time there. It's just a short prayer. So you say, in the name of Lord Jesus Christ, and, and with the power of the Holy Spirit in me, I forgive the name of the person, for all the wrong he has caused me, consciously or not, and I ask God to give him all his blessing and help me to forget about it. And, you know, I've shared this, this uh, prayer with a few people, and even sometimes people, they come up to me, and they say, you know, I wanted to forgive this person, but I just can't, you know, and I said, well, I told him about this prayer, and he says, well, I'll try that, you know? So. No, it's a beautiful prayer, and I think to be able to forgive, especially when the hurt is profound, is often experienced as something that truly is beyond my capacity, right? And we do need the intervention of grace. That we must forgive is clear. Uh, our ability to do so unaided... Um, is, is questionable, so to say the least. So we would uh, look for divine grace and to do so, and that prayer is a beautiful way to seek it. Thank you. And I will just say, in, in the name of being efficient with our time, because we do have limited time, we want to finish the queue. Um, just yeah, please. can we finish before Mass tomorrow morning? That'd be good. <laughs> no, no, it's good. Um, we're, we're good. Such beautiful questions. If you're able to condense your articulation just so that the question's quick and then the response will be quick. <laughs> I think there's a place for you, Jenny, in the Vatican's diplomatic corps. That's right. <laughs> condense your I learned articulation. It from you. <laughs> um, I'm a healthcare worker. I work huh. with under Alberta Health Services, and I work mostly with the elderly and palliative, of which in prime from, I'm from uh, northern Alberta, so the Archdiocese of Gruar McLennan. Mm. Most of them in my communities are Catholic or Christians, and an issue that's becoming, sorry, this is close to my heart, um, is becoming more and more widespread is made. Oh, yeah. Medically assisted in dying. And many of our people, are choosing to end their suffering and end their lives. And um, it's not only the elderly anymore, um, it's younger people also. And in my Catholic conversations with many of our Sunday Catholics, when we go out for lunch together, we share this conversation. And many are saying that, yeah, that's what I'm going to do too. Um, I don't want my families to have to walk through the suffering. 
And I just wonder your grace. People don't know the value of suffering, the purpose of suffering. And I'm just asking and I'm pleading you, what are we going to do about that yeah. issue? Yeah, thank you. Thanks for the question. In that, that, so a couple thoughts. First of all, the question of suffering. Um, Matthew and I just talked about that on the, on the last podcast, the, the, the Christian tradition of redemptive suffering. Um, as it fits within this particular context, though, um, I think we need to realize that suffering, and surveys will back this up, is not the primary reason people will ask for this uh, assisted suicide or euthanasia. You'll find me very, very reticent to use the term made. I think that is, that is a euphemism to cover over the stark, terrible truth of what this is. Um, assisted suicide and the practice is mostly euthanasia, which is direct intervention to kill a patient. Let's not obfuscate about this in any way. This is something that has been developing with great rapidity ever since the Supreme Court Carter decision back in 2016, to the point that Canada is now the showcase for how, globally, for how bad things can get. It's absolutely true and sadly true that many of our Catholic people are not with the church on this. Sometimes it's because of a lack of understanding of terms, lack of understanding of the church's teaching on end-of-life issues, um, bioethical issues, medical practices, and so on. And sometimes I think it is a surrender um, to the spirit of the age. And sometimes um, it might be, could well be, in fairness, it could well be out of anguish at seeing a loved one suffer. We, again, here's the stand firm coming back again. We need to stand firm as the church and certainly the bishops of Canada have consistently insisted that uh, life is sacred, cannot be tampered with uh, from conception to natural death, and assisted suicide and euthanasia is always morally wrong, full stop. <laughs> Yet because of the confusion, the lack of understanding, we need to do a whole lot more in terms of catechesis. Now, you may recall that uh, we in the Archdiocese saw this coming quite a few years back and we had our series called Every Life Matters. And that involved a series of listening sessions that I had with parishioners across the archdiocese, and that led to some presentations with, from myself, from lawyers, medical practitioners, and so on, to help people understand the range of the issues. Recently, I was asked to chair an ad hoc group at the national level, the, the CCCB, for that same purpose helping people understand uh, the teaching of the church on these matters, helping people understand the beauty of palliative care, and thank you to you who raised the question, and 
Thank you to you for the beautiful work that you're doing there. How do we promote greater access to palliative care? How do we create communities of compassion? Especially now when we're hearing of people who are seeking euthanasia, not because they want to die, but because they can't afford to live. A lot of people falling through the cracks. We need to be a far, far more compassionate society. So we've put together um, a catechetical kit, if I can put it that way. It's called Horizons of Hope. We have piloted it uh, in a couple of parishes over the last couple of months, and we want to start rolling out it across the archdiocese. So it's four sessions, two hours each, are on different aspects of the issue with video presentations from medical or legal or moral ex experts, and then opportunities for people to sit around the table, talk about this, understand. Um, and then how are we going to roll out the results of that into a broader initiative that we're calling Hope and Dignity, in which we want to find ways in which we can capture once again both the Catholic teaching and the Catholic voice Euthanasia and the push for it is a real juggernaut in this country. It keep, keeps getting pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed. And it seems to me, I could be wrong, but it seems to me that it's falling more and more to the Catholic Church to be the voice to stand up and say, stop, we beg to differ, this is not right. But we need to be equipping our people to do just that. So Horizons of Hope situated within a broader initiative that we hope to have unfold over the next little while. And you can go to the Archdiocesan website and uh, Hope and Dignity and Horizons of Hope are both linked there directly. So if you want that for your parish or for your family, it's there. I think it, it also has a lot of the catechetical things That's and right. presentations we gave during the uh, Every Life Matters series. Okay. That's right. Yeah, yeah that, there's a whole page dedicated to this topic on the Archdiocesan website. All right, our next question. Hello, Your Grace. Um, my name is Rebecca Boskell, and I, this past year... Um, spent the year with the Seeds of the Word community in Calgary, partaking in their sabbatical year program. And there were many graces from that, but one part of it was that um, my eyes were open to the heart of a father a bishop needs to have, and that he does have. Um, and so my question to you, you can... It's kind of a six-part question, but you can choose to answer just one part if you want for sake of time. But what sets your heart on fire for your diocese, for the church in Canada, and for the universal church? Both a holy discontent, something that needs to be worked on, and a gratitude, something to praise or that offers hope. Gracious, what a question. <laughs> Beautiful that is a question. run-on sentence. <laughs> Beautiful question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, What's my heart on fire for? God, I love the question. Um, I, my heart's on fire for the truth of the gospel. Right? I'm, I'm just seeing, as you are, more and more in our culture today, the damage that happens to people's lives when they live apart from that truth. When they find themselves subject to and victims of the falsehoods that are out there. I see it in the suicidal ideation of young people. I see it in the tent cities, you know, that are populated now by people with mental health issues, substance abuse issues. I was in 
meetings with the Alberta bishops just this past week. We, they were held at the Edmonton Eparchy, which is right on 97th Street there in the heart of the inner city. And the people all around that building that we were seeing through the week with, you know, pushing their carts or, you know, sleep on the grass because they just overdosed or whatever it was. It's all there. The pain, the damage, the hurt that we're seeing in so, so many ways, that's, and that is often invisible, but you know when you encounter people of the anguish that they, they carry within for a whole host of reasons. And so much of that stems from the fact of not knowing Jesus Christ and the real hope that he alone offers. So how do, we, how do we make ourselves heard? How do we get the message out? And it's not just putting out the message, but getting through. How do we do that? Um, we obviously need to do things a whole lot differently because in many ways the message isn't getting through. I'd, I'd say my heart burns for that and to find that answer. Beautifully said. The gentleman in the yellow jacket. <laughs> ah, your grace. Thank you so much for having me and for us being here. It's sure. a great gift for us to have you. I have just a simple question. My name is Lubo Orda. As we know, Holy Mass is the highest form of praise from which we receive incredible graces. For the Catholic working class and students, that provides... Uh, parents that provides uh, for the family, it becomes very hard to grow in holiness as we do not have the ability to attend weekly masses after work hours as they are during of working hours during the week. Are you able to help provide masses in our churches after work hours? If it is up to the parish priest to decide they seem to be very busy and unable to find time for two daily masses. How would you be able to help them with fixing their inability to perform this vital duty? Thank you. Mm. Mm. Um, I, I guess I would just encourage you by saying I really do believe our priests are doing their best to serve their people. Um, the mass schedule in a parish is not something that I would typically get involved in, right? I leave it to the pastor together with his people, to, together with his resources and availability to work all of that out. Um, it will mean by times, sadly, that mass may not always be able to be offered when people might like it to be. Um, and that becomes especially difficult if you are living out in a rural area where you don't have the opportunity within the city, for example, to find a church that is going to have mass in the evening. Um, I'm not so sure that with the numbers of priests that we've got, that that's a question that has any easy resolution. Not much of an answer for you, but it's, it's the answer I've got. All right, our last question. Well, hi. Uh -oh. My name is Mercedes Eisinger. I was wondering, because uh, you were talking about vocations earlier, Yes. Which saint inspired your vocation? Oh. Nice. <laughs> oh, the Blessed Mother, for sure. Okay. The Blessed Mother. She said yes 
She said yes. And, you know, um, that, that line from the gospel story at Cana, right, where Jesus or Mary said to the, to the uh, first of all, Mary as a good mother was encouraging her son, you know, do something for these people. And Mary encourages us, but she encourages us with those words, do whatever he tells you, right? And so Mary, who said yes, she says to me and she says to you, to all of us, do whatever he tells you. And so it's the Blessed Mother, for sure. Well, Your Grace, thank you so much for responding so graciously to all of these questions. You're Um, welcome. Yes. Great questions. Thank you. Yeah, and thank you again yeah, to everyone who took the time to articulate and to pray about what they wanted to ask. Um, Your Grace, uh, as we conclude here, do you mind just uh, praying a blessing over everyone here? Sure. Yeah. yeah. Honored. The Lord be with you. And with yours. And may Almighty God bless you all, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God love you. God bless you. Amen.